Hey y'all, welcome beyond just Christian Podcast. My name is Brenna Covelins. Hello, hello, happy February. We got our first episode this month. I am super excited to be back. And guys, I got something very special for y'all. If y'all have been here before for my bad, oh my gosh, I don't know how to say it without a tongue twister, Bad Batch of Biblical Brothers series, or Bad Batch of Biblical Wives, Bad Batch of Biblical Husbands, this is kind of like that kind of series. However, it's more so about parenting. So parents of the Bible. And if you saw the title, it's called Pretty Pitiful Parents of the Bible. Gotta have the three Ps in there, you know, make it tie together. But yes, today we're going to be talking about bad parenting and things not to do as a parent, which involves murdering your child, which also involves sacrificing your child, which is still murder, and all the things, bad examples of parents in the Bible who... Are questionable parents who probably should not be parents and reproduce, but they're selfish, evil people. So here we are talking about this because why not teach you guys the Bible in a fun, unique way? So if you guys enjoy the episode, please stick along. I know it's going to be a little bit more of a darker episode, but let's be honest, there's some crazy crap that happens in the Bible, and this is one of them. So if you guys enjoy, share with friends, share with your family, and let's get on to it. All right, so before we start every episode, I try to read a Bible verse that relates to this series or just episode in general. So today we got a verse from Psalm chapter 106, verses 30, I think it's, is it 34 to 39? Okay, I don't know because I forgot to write the first part. Oh, no, I think it's 34, sorry, 34 to 39. All right, so again, Psalm chapter 106, verses 34 to 39. All right, it goes like this. Israel failed to destroy the nations in the land as the Lord had commanded them. Instead, they mingled among the pagans and adopted their evil customs. They worshipped their idols, which led to their downfall. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. They shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, by sacrificing them to the idols of Canaan. They polluted the land with murder. They defiled themselves by their evil deeds, and their love of idols was adultery in the uh, Lord's sight. So, that's like a little foreshadowing of what we're talking about today. So, as I mentioned in the intro, we're talking about parents who, again, this all relates to murder, but let's throw in some other words that are mentioned. Sacrificed, murdered, and ate their young. Yeah, that's how sick some people are. And what is the like whole main uh, commonality between all these people? Well, it's in honor of false gods, demon sacrifice kind of thing, like honoring demons with their actions, and desperation and just anger. And just, they're just mad at their lives. They are unsatisfied. They're thirsting and hungry for something that they can never have, which is peace. And a lot of these parents, again, should not be parents. So we're going to go to our first example, which is in 2 Kings chapter 3. All right, again, 2 Kings chapter 3. And I'm going to read, I know it's going to be a little bit boring. You're going to be like, oh, Brenna has to read a lot today. However, I want you guys to understand the basis of what's going on. So we're going to start from verse 3. Or no, sorry, verse 1. It says, Ahab's son, again, if I pronounce these names incorrectly, I'm not a biblical scholar here. I never went to seminary, so bear with me if I pronounce some of these names incorrectly. Just roll with it. (laughs) Ahab's son, Joram, began to rule over Israel in the 18th year of King, oh gosh, Jesophats, I don't even know if I'm saying that right, reign in Judah. We're just going to call him Jay because I don't want to butcher his name again. All right, so he reigned in Samaria 12 years. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight, but not to the same extent as his father and mother. So let's look at that. There were parents that he had who were also doing evil in the Lord's sight. So it clearly he did not have the best examples of how to act or how to be, yada, yada. So it continues to say, he at least tore down the sacred pillar of Baal that his father had set up. So his father, as we see, worshipped the false god Baal. Nevertheless, he continued the sins that Jeroboam, son of Nebat, had committed and led the people to Israel of Israel to commit. 
King Mesha of Moab was a sheep breeder. He used to pay the king of Israel an annual tribute of 1,000 lambs and the wool of 1,000... Uh, oh, sorry. Yeah, 1,000 rams. I said that right. Okay. But after Ahab's death, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So King Joram mustered the army of Israel and marched from Samaria. On the way, he sent them this message to King Jay of Judah. The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you join me in battle against him? And Jay replied, Why, of course, you and I are as one. My troops are your troops, and my horses are your horses. Then Jay asked, What route will we take? We will attack from the wilderness of Edom, Joram replied. The king of Edom and his troops joined them, and all three armies traveled along a roundabout route through the wilderness for seven days. But there was no water for the men or their animals. What should we do? The king of Israel cried out. The Lord has brought these three of us, or brought the three of us here to let the king of Moab defeat us. But King Jay of Judah said, Is there no prophet of the Lord with us? If there is, we can ta uh, ask the Lord what to do through him. One of the king Joram's officers replied, Elijah, son of Shaphat, is here. He used to be Elijah's personal assistant. Jay said, yes, the Lord speaks through him. So the king of Israel, King Jay of Judah, and the king of Edom went to consult with Elijah. Why are you coming to me, Elijah asked the king of Israel. Go to the pagan prophets of your mother and father. So clearly, Elijah's like, wow, you know, you kind of neglected the Lord and his wisdom for all these years, and now you want to go to me because you're in danger? Okay. But King Joram of Israel said, no, for it was the Lord who called us for your kings here, only to be defeated by the king of Moab. Elijah replied, as surely as the all, sorry, as surely as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, I wouldn't even bother with you except for my respect for King Jay of Judah. Now bring me someone who can play the harp. First of all, I know you're probably thinking, why is Elijah requesting music from a harp? That's kind of weird, right? It's like, hey, we're going to come to Elijah and ask him for help, but he's going to tell us to bring us the harp. Or him a harper or something like that? What? You know, it's kind of weird when you first read along, but let's continue. Verse 15 continues, While the harp was being played, the power of the Lord came upon Elijah, and he said, This is what the Lord says. This dry valley will be filled with pools of water. You will see neither wind nor rain, says the Lord, but this valley will be filled with water. You will have plenty for yourselves and your cattle and other animals. But this is only a simple thing for the Lord. He will make you victorious over the army of Moab. You will conquer the best of their towns, even the fortified ones. You will cut down their good trees, stop all their springs, and ruin all the good lands with stones. The next day, at the same, or at the, about, sorry, about the time when the morning sacrifice was offered, water suddenly appeared. It was flowing from the direction of Edom, and soon there was water everywhere. Meanwhile, when the people of Moab heard about the three armies marching against them, they mobilized every man who was old enough to strap on a sword, and they stationed themselves along the border. But when they got up to uh, the next morning, the sun was shining across the water, making it appear red to Moab, to Moabites like blood. So basically, the water looks like blood. It's blood, they exclaimed. The three armies must have attacked and killed each other. Let's go, men of Moab, and collect the plunder. But, psych, when the Moabs arrived at the Israelite camp, the army of Israel rushed out and attacked them until they turned and ran. The army of Israel chased them into the land of Moab, destroying everything as they went. They destroyed the towns, covered their good lands with stones, stopped all the springs, and cut down the good trees. Finally, only ker and its stone walls were left, but men with slings surrounded and attacked it. Alright, this is the part I want you guys to pay attention to. When the king of Moab saw that he was losing the battle, he led 700 of his swordsmen in a desperate attempt to break through the enemy lines near the king of Edom, but they failed. Then, the king of Moab took his oldest son, who would have been the next king, and sacrificed him as a burnt offering on the wall. So there was great anger against Israel, and the Israelites withdrew and returned to their own land. Um, so yeah. <laughs> Basically, the king of Moab saw or sees that he's losing the battle, and he's desperate, um, and all his plans just fall through, right? You know, and then, in his, uh, I don't know, probably his defeat, his shame, his guilt, his anger, his resentment at the other people went in, he probably was like, you know what? I'm angry. I want to do something that 
doesn't make sense right now. I'm going to sacrifice my son, who's the oldest, and would have been the next king, as a burnt offering on a wall. First of all, what? That makes no sense. Your son would have been the next king. He might have been a great king, but no, because you're angry and you feel sorry for yourself that you lost and this whole entire fight. You want to sacrifice the next person after you? How does that make any sense? Like, okay, you have all these... I'm not saying you should have sacrificed any of your sons, but what I am saying is that just seems like a very pity me moment. Like, poor me, you know? I'm the victim. I My life sucks. Let me just kill my son as a sacrifice because maybe this will be what I need to continue. What? No, that that's stupid. You're stupid. Just stop. And I don't like calling people stupid, but this is one of those moments where you just, like, want to, like, I don't know, slap someone who's already dead, who you'll never meet, and you just want to, like, give them, like, a real awakening, like, like, a rude awakening, you know what I'm saying? You know? Anyway. But, uh, yeah, so basically, this dad took his oldest son as a sacrifice and hung him, you know, sacrificed him as a burnt offering on the wall. So basically... You know, when you go to a hunter's house and you see all these deer heads on a wall? Yeah, pretty much the same thing. Just do it to your own kids. That's fine. Anyway, example two of bad parenting. There's the story of a woman who killed, cooked, and ate her son. Okay, so we're going to 2 Kings chapter 6. Again, 2 Kings chapter 6. We're going to be reading from verses 24 to about 33. All right, let's read. All right, this is the part of the Bible when Ben-Hadad besieges Samaria. Okay, verse 24. Sometime later, however, King Ben-Hadad of Aram mustered his entire army and besieged Samaria. As a result, there was great famine in the city. The siege lasted so long that a donkey's head sold for 80 pieces of silver and a cup of doves done sold for five pieces of silver. So first of all, backtrack here. There's a lot of famine going on. So when there's famine, what do people do? They hoard the resources that they have. They raise the prices of resources because there's barely any left. Because you got to make profit somehow. If there's no food, you'll use whatever you have. Including doves done. We love that. Um, it continues on to say, verse 26. One day, as the king of Israel was walking along the wall of the city, a woman called to him, Please help me, my lord, the king. He answered, If the Lord doesn't help you, what can I do? I have neither or neither food from the threshing floor nor wine from the press to give you. But then the king asked, What is the matter? She replied, This woman said to me, Come on, let's eat your son today, then we will eat my son tomorrow. So we cooked my son and ate him. Then the next day I said to her, Kill your son so we can eat him too. But she has hidden her son. When the king heard this, he tore his clothes in despair and as the king walked along the wall, the people could see that he was wearing burlap under his robe next to his skin. May God strike me and kill me, even if I don't separate Elijah's head from his shoulders this very day, the king vowed. Elijah was sitting in his house with the elders of Israel when the king sent a messenger to summon him. But before the messenger arrived, Elijah said to the elders, A murderer has sent a man to cut off my head. When he arrives, shut the door and keep him out. We will soon hear his master's steps following him. While Elijah was saying this, the messenger arrived, and the king said, All this misery is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Alright, so, backtracking to what we just read. Basically, a woman approaches the king, and she's like, Hey, the other day, this woman said, We're going to eat, you know, your son, so let's kill him. And then when we're hungry, we'll eat my son, or and kill him, blah, blah, blah. So basically, the mom of a son, she loses her son, but the other mom was mm -hmm. like, no, I just lied to you to eat your son because I don't want to kill my own. So basically, they were fed for like, what, a day? And then they were both hungry again. But it just, both moms here suck, okay? The first mom sucks because she's like, let's eat your son. So she feeds this idea into this other mother's head. Like, this is fine. This is acceptable. Let's do this. And the, um, the other mom, who had her son killed and d didn't even eat the other mother's son, uh, they just both, they both 
irk me, okay? One decided to go with the idea and one was a liar. They both ate the one son, though. And it just, cannibalism, I, like, you hear about it in certain stories and you're like, wow, you know, I would never come to this point. But think about this. There's a famine. People were literally killing their own kids to survive, which, first of all, you should not kill your kids to survive. If you're going to suffer, you suffer with them. You don't kill them. You don't eat them. It's just disgusting. And this is one of those times in the Bible where I remember years ago, someone told me, oh, like, children's sacrifice is okay because I read it in the Bible. And a lot of people take the Bible out of context because they read these things and they think, oh, well, this happened in the Bible. It's acceptable. No, the Bible also showcases the evil practices and customs and things that people have done. Because keep in mind that when the woman approached the king, she says, what do I do? You know, like, please help me. And he, he's so bitter in his response. He's like, if the Lord doesn't help you, what can I do? You know, I have nothing to give you. And then at the end, he curses the Lord for allowing this famine. He's like, may God strike me and kill me if I don't separate Elijah's head from his shoulders this very day. He's angry at Elijah because Elijah's God allowed this to happen, right? But yet, the king doesn't even turn to God. He doesn't think, okay, I'm mad at God, but I should really go to him right now because I want to admit and confess my feelings to him. I need his help. He does not think that. He's like, I want to kill God's own. And, you know, he probably thinks, oh, this woman killed her son, and that was wrong. But let me kill Elijah because I'm even angrier. You know, like, he allowed this person to die. And I'm just thinking, no, this is the evil of what has become of you guys because you didn't follow the Lord's commands. And anyway, yeah, this mother and then the other mother just should not be mothers. A mom should not suggest harm to another woman's child. And then the other woman should not allow her son to be murdered for food. Again. This is just one of those moments in the Bible where you're just like, I wish this didn't happen. Because you read it and you're like, wow, this is really messed up. Alright. So, example three. We're going to the book of Second Chronicles, chapter 33. Again, Second Chronicles, chapter 33. I'm only going to be reading verses 1 to 6. It's very short, so I promise I won't be reading that much. Alright, so. This is when Manasseh also sacrificed his own son's via fire. <laughs> uh, that's what I wrote in my notes. So let's read. It says in verse one, Manasseh, I hope I'm reading this right. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. That's very young. And he reigned in Jerusalem for 55 years. So that's a very long reign. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight, following the detestable practices of the pagan nations that the Lord had driven from the land ahead of the Israelites. So he also rebuilt the pagan shrines that his father, Hezekiah, had broken down. He constructed altars for the images of Baal, which is a false god, and set up Asherah poles. He also bowed before all the powers of the heavens and worshipped them. So basically, he worshipped everything but God. He wanted to go to every resource instead of the source. It says in verse 4, He built pagan altars in the temple of the Lord. Oh, that's nice. The place where the Lord had said, My name will remain in Jerusalem forever. So he's literally just disgracing the honor of the Lord and just being so disrespectful. Like, nah, I want to put my pagan shrines in this temple that's holy. Boy, that's stupid. Verse 5, He built these altars for all the powers of the heavens and both courtyards of the Lord's temple. Alright, pay attention. Verse 6, Manasseh also sacrificed his sons in the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. -Hin totally pronounced that wrong. But basically, this man sacrificed his own sons in the fire. He practiced sorcery, divination, and witchcraft, and he consulted with mediums and psychics. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight, arousing the Lord's anger. We love a crappy dad, don't we? Um, yeah, so... Again, if we're reading all these things, we'll see a big similarity, and a lot of this involves pagan worship of false gods, of witchcraft, of just evil customs. Like, he practiced all these dark things, and it's no wonder that he sacrificed his kids, which 
seems like a lot of times in the Bible, anytime there's some kind of death of a child, especially whether it's by fire or eating your children or something stupid like that, it stems from false worship. It stems from partaking in evil customs and things that the devil loves that God hates. So that's example three. We got another example from Second Kings going back again. Example four, Second Kings chapter 16. Again, Second Kings chapter 16, verse three. We're going to be reading from, uh, you know what? Well, it's verse three where I really want to like hit the home run and say this is the main point of this whole thing. Technically, it's going to be verses one to four. So again, Second Kings chapter 16, verses one to four. It says, Ahaz, son of Jotham, began to rule over Judah in the 17th year of King Pekah's reign in Israel. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 16 years. He did not do what was pleasing in the Lord's sight, as his ancestor David had done. Instead, he followed the example of the kings of Israel, even sacrificing his own son in the fire. Again, it's just kind of a little bit of a repeat but it's, you know, a different part of scripture. Um, and this way, he followed the detestable practices of the pagan nations that the Lord had driven from the land ahead of the Israelites. He offered sacrifices and burned incense at the pagan shrines and on the hills and under every tree. I mean, if you read scripture, you know, Ahaz was just like, dude, what are you doing? He, he done, he, <laughs> he's done a lot of bad things in God's sight and he wasn't really up to par with God's way. So, you know, he wasn't the best example of a king. So if you read about him, I would not follow in his footsteps. <laughs> That's my advice. All right, we're going to move to the next one, which is example five. We're going to be turning to 2 Kings chapter 17. Again, 2 Kings chapter 17. I don't know why, but all these are starting to feel very repetitive, but I know I didn't repeat much, but it just sounds so repetitive, right? All right, so we're going to be reading from verses 5 to 17. All right, so this part is when Samaria falls to Assyria. All right, verse 5. Then the king of Assyria invaded the entire land, and for three years he besieged the city of Samaria. Finally, in the ninth year of King Hoshea's reign, Samaria fell, and the people of Israel were exiled to Assyria. They were settled in colonies in Hala along the banks of the Haber River in Gazan and in the cities of the Medes, or Medes, I don't know how to pronounce that properly. It's M-E-D-E-S. Uh, verse 7 continues, This disaster came upon the people of Israel because they worshipped other gods. They sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them safely out of Egypt and had rescued them from the power of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. They had followed the practices of the pagan nations the Lord had driven from the land ahead of them, as well as the practices of the kings of Israel had introduced. The people of Israel also had secretly done many things that were not pleasing to the Lord their God. They built pagan shrines for themselves in all their towns, from the smallest outpost to the largest walled city. They set up sacred pillars and asherah poles at the top of every hill and under every tree. They offered sacrifices in all the hilltops, Excuse me, just like the nations the Lord had driven from the land ahead of them. So the people of Israel had done many evil things, arousing the Lord's anger. Yes, they worshipped idols, despite the Lord's specific and repeated warnings. Again and again, the Lord had sent his prophets and seers to warn both Israel and Judah. Turn from all your evil ways, obey my commands and decrees. The entire law that I commanded your ancestors to obey and that I gave you through my servants, the prophets. But the Israelites would not listen. They were stubborn as their ancestors who had refused to believe in the Lord their God had been. They rejected his decrees and the covenant he made with their ancestors, and they despised all his warnings. They worshipped worthless idols, so they became worthless themselves. Ooh, say it loud and proud. All right, they followed the example of the nations around them, disobeying the Lord's commands not to imitate them. So the whole point of this is saying is that they imitated the other pagan nations and followed their customs and rejected God's ways, which again, I know I'm sounding very repetitive, but y'all need to hear the repetitiveness because how often do we tend to do stupid things often, all right? 
Verse 16 says, They rejected all the commands of the Lord their God and made two calves from metal. They set up Asherah poles and worshipped Baal and all the forces of heaven. They even sacrificed their own sons and daughters in the fire. They consulted fortune tellers and practiced sorcery and sold themselves to evil, arousing the Lord's angle. A a angle? Wow. Anger. <laughs> all right. So let's just take a look. Thoughts. All these things were done for pagan customs, selfishness, or desperation because they thought it was right. God hated these things, and anyone who loves the Lord should hate these things too and not partake in them. Right? You would think, right? Anyway. Alright, so this leads me to my next question. What does the Bible say about this subject? Alright, so we're going to go to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Again, Deuteronomy chapter 18. I'm going to start reading, let's see, I'm going to just read from verses 9 to 14. All right, so basically, this is the part of the Bible that tells us not to sacrifice our sons and daughters as a burnt offering, because just don't do it. The Lord said don't do it, just don't do it. <laughs> you would think, right? Uh, a call to holy living. When you enter the land that your Lord, that the Lord God has given you, sorry, that the Lord your God has given you, Listen, I get tongue twisted sometimes, okay? Be very careful not to imitate the detestable customs of the nations living there. For example, never sacrifice your son or daughter as a burnt offering, and do not let your people practice fortune telling, or use sorcery, or interpret omens, or engage in witchcraft, or cast spells, or function as mediums or psychics, or core, or call forth the spirits of the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. It is because the other nations have done these detestable things that the Lord your God will drive them out ahead of you. But you must be blameless before the Lord your God. The nations you are about to displace consult sorcerers and fortune tellers, but the Lord your God forbids you to do such things. Can we just take a moment to uh, notice something here? If you sacrificed your daughters or your sons, whoever... That is literally a form of witchcraft. It's evil. It's detestable. God tells us to imitate him, not imitate people around us and what is normal for them. What's normal isn't always what's good. What's normal isn't always what's... Well, first of all, it shouldn't even be normal. <laughs> okay, it shouldn't. But these are the evil things that people are doing, and God warns them again and again, don't do this. Because... When you do these things to yourselves, you make yourselves even more shameful and just, you destroy yourselves because of these things. All right, we're going to also go to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Oh, wait, did I just read this? Hold on. Do I know? Oh, I read 18. Okay, so Deuteronomy chapter 28. Um, again, this is just like the same kind of message, you know, don't sacrifice your sons or daughters as a burnt offerings. But this one, uh, the title here is Curses for Disobedience. So we're going to be reading Deuteronomy chapter 28 verses 49. Oh gosh, should I pick a long one today? <laughs> 49 to 68. Bear with me here, okay? All right, it says, The Lord will bring a distant nation against you from the end of the earth, and it will swoop down on you like a vulture. It is a nation whose language you do not understand, a fierce and heartless nation that shows no respect for the old and no pity for the young. Its armies will devour your livestock and crops, and you will be destroyed. They will leave you with no grain, new wine, olive oil, calves, or lambs, and you will starve to death. They will attack your cities and all the fortified walls in your land, the walls you trusted to protect you. They will be knocked down. They will attack all the towns in the land your God has given you. This siege and terrible distress of the enemy's attack will be so severe that you will eat the flesh of your sons and your daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you. The most tender-hearted man among you will have no compassion for his own brother, his beloved wife, and his surviving children. He will refuse to share with them the flesh he is devouring, the flesh of one of his own children, because he has nothing else to eat during the siege and terrible distress that your enemy will inflict on all your towns. The most tender and delicate woman among you, so delicate she would not so much as touch the ground with her foot, will be selfish toward her husband she loved and her own son or daughter. She will hide from them 
from them, the afterbirth, and the new baby she has born, so that she herself can secretly eat them. She will have nothing else to eat during the siege and terrible distress that your enemy will inflict on all your towns. If you refuse to obey all the words of this instruction that are written in this book, and if you do not fear the glorious and awesome name of the Lord your God, then the Lord will overwhelm you and your children with indescribable plagues. These plagues will be so intense and without relief, making your life's, uh, lives miserable and unbearably sick. He will afflict you with all the diseases sorry, diseases of Egypt that you feared so much, and you will have no relief. The Lord will afflict you with every sickness and plague there is, even those not mentioned in the book of instruction, until you are destroyed. Though you have become as numerous as the stars in the sky, you know, populated by God's grace here, few of you will be left because you would not listen to the Lord your God. Just as the Lord has found great pleasure in causing you to prosper and multiply, the Lord will find pleasure in destroying you. You will be torn from the land you are about to enter and occupy, for the Lord will scatter you among the nations from one end, of the, one end of the earth to the other. Then you will worship foreign gods that neither you or your ancestors have known, gods made of wood and stone, or metal or whatever else. There, will, uh, there among you, those nations, you will find no peace or place of rest, and the Lord will cause your heart to tremble, your eyesight to fail, and your soul to despair. Your life will constantly hang in the balance. You will live night and day in fear, unsure if you will survive. In the morning, you will say, if only it were night, and in the evening, you would say, if only it were morning, for you will be terrified of the awful horrors that you see around you. Then the Lord will send you back to the Egypt and ships to a destination I promised you would never see again. There you will have to offer to sell yourselves to your enemies as slaves, but no one will buy you. So isn't that so intense? Like, you're probably thinking, who? These people really messed it up for themselves. Like, they refused. Like, okay, God even said, you know, your purpose with family was to multiply. Your purpose is literally reproducing and producing family for future generations. Like he gave you that gift, but instead in your desperation and disobedience, you started hurting and harming your family members just to survive. And yet you feel no peace. You feel no rest. That will not help you. Basically, they will never be satisfied, never content. Um, and that's by disobeying the Lord because God's like, okay, you want to disobey? Here you go. Here's what you wanted and see how it works out for you. Because I gave you everything you could ever need and want, and yet here you are suffering because of your own decisions. That free will, y'all, free will, um, can lead to very disobedient things. Alright, so moving on from there, I know that some people might argue, but Brenna, what about the story of Abraham and his son Isaac? What about God and Jesus? What about Jephthah and his daughter? God allowed those sacrifices to happen. Well, I'm going to get into that. All right. So if you got your Bible, we're going to be going to Genesis chapter 22. We're going to be reading verses 1 to 19. Again, Genesis 22 verses 1 to 19. So this is the part of scripture where Abraham's faith is tested. All right. So verse 20 or sorry, verse 1. It says sometime later, Abraham was tested by God. And so was his faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied. Here I am. Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of those mountains, which I will show you. The next morning, Abraham got up early. He saddled his donkey and took two of his servants with him, along with his son, Isaac. Then he chopped wood for a fire for a burnt offering and set out for the place that God had told him to go. On the third day of their journey, Abraham looked up and saw the place from the distance. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told the servants. The boy and I will travel a little further up. We will worship there and we will come right back. So let's pause for a second. Abraham tells his servants, hey, stay here. Me and Isaac are going to go up, but we're going to come right back. So keep in mind that God told him, you're going to sacrifice your son. All right. He's going to be the burnt offering. But yet he tells the servants, we'll be right back. Not I will be right back. Isaac's just going to be up there burning alive, but I'll, you know, we'll be back together. So that makes you wonder, why is Abraham so faithful? Is he going to try to 
totally back out of this whole command that God gave him, you know? We just want to read a little bit more, okay? So first six continues. So I, blah, 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 sorry, <laughs> I keep stuttering a little bit. Bear with me, y'all. It continues to say, so Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders while he himself carried the wood and the knife or carried the fire and the knife. Sorry. As the two of them walked on together, Isaac turned to Abraham and said, father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, we have the fire and we have the wood, the boy said, but where is the sheep for the burnt offering? Abraham replied, God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son, and they continue, um, they've continued to walk together. Verse 9 says, when they arrived at the place where God had told them to go, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. Then he tied his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham picked up the knife and to kill his son as a sacrifice. So Abraham literally picks up his knife. He's ready to go, just as the Lord commanded him. But... At that moment, the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham replied, here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Do not hurt him in any way. For now I know that you truly fear God. We have not withheld, sorry, you have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. So basically God's like, yo, don't kill your son. I recognize you. I see you. I see your love for me and your fear for me is great. And don't kill your son. <laughs> um, then Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by its horns in a thicket. So he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son. Abraham named the place Yahweh Yireh, which means the Lord will provide. To this day, the people still use that name as a proverb. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. So we're going to pause real quick and just say, wow, God literally supplied a ram ready to be sacrificed instead of Abraham's son, Isaac. And that's awesome. God was willing to have Abraham and Isaac walk up this mountain and God saw Abraham's love for the Lord was more powerful than for his son, but in the most honorable way possible. And God didn't want Isaac to die. He wanted to see that Abraham loved him, loved him and was going was, can't talk, was willing to give up anything for him, right? And then verse 15 continues, Then the angel of the Lord called again to Abraham from heaven. This is what the Lord says, Because you have obeyed me and not withheld even your son, your only son, which also God understands, by the way, I swear by my own name that I will certainly bless you. I will multiply your descendants beyond number, like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will conquer the cities of their enemies. And through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, all because you have obeyed me. So this man's obedience helped serve his descendants of the future. And all the earth was blessed because of him and his obedience to God. How cool is that? Um, and then verse 19 says, Then they returned to the servants and traveled back to Beersheba, where Abraham continued to live. So I have some thoughts. Abraham had his faith in God, knowing that he would provide. God's intention was to not harm Isaac, but to reveal his provision. An angel sent by God came before Abraham and before he even went through with all this. So God provided at the right time, at the God's time, uh, or at, sorry, not at the God's time, at God's time, he provided. And he even gave like a whole animal. Here, take this animal and use it instead of your son. That's awesome. We love that. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> um, but no, that's just one example. Because I know that's a very monumental part of the Bible. And it's often taught about. But a lot of people will say, oh, well, you know, God told him to sacrifice his son. God also wanted to reveal his faithfulness to Abraham and Isaac. Can you just imagine? Like, imagine being in Isaac's shoes, for example. You say, oh, yeah, by the way, son you know, God will provide. And you're just like laying there on this altar like, well, I think I'm going to die because my dad's pointing a knife at me and I just have to accept this. And at the right time, before he plunged the knife to his son to kill him before, you know, sacrificing him, God said, no, stop. I got you. We're not doing this. I love him. I love you. I am your father. I am his father. I'm his provider. I'm your provider. Don't do it. I love you both. Can you imagine Isaac witnessing that? It's like, wow, God does love me. He doesn't want me to die like this. He wants best for me. And look at how he blessed my own dad. Like, that's amazing, you know?
So can you imagine being in both their shoes? Like if you're the parent and God tells you sacrifice your son, but then it's like, no, I just want to see your faithfulness for me. And you proved yourself to me and you obeyed and I love you. That's like the biggest blessing ever. His son and him were alive after that. And they were probably thriving after that moment. Like the spiritual high they felt, I can only imagine. Like that's insane. A good insane, but a good, you know, it's crazy. I just, I couldn't imagine being in that situation. I would probably be... If I was in Isaac's shoes, I would probably be internally panicking. <laughs> like, God, please, please provide. I don't want to die today. I don't want to die like this. That's the worst way to go. All right. So we got example number two, uh, which is from Luke chapter 23, verses 26 to 49. Again, Luke chapter 23, verses 26 to 49. This part of scripture is, um, wow, where did I go? Oh, yeah. This is about God and Jesus, and you know, Jesus dying on the cross. If y'all know that universal story, which is the gospel, yeah, we're going to be reading about the crucifix crucifixion. There we go. So, verse 26 goes, As they led Jesus away, a man named Simon, who was from Cyrene, happened to be coming in from the countryside. The soldiers seized him and put a cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large crowd trailed behind, including many grief-stricken women. But Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For the days are coming when they will say, Fortunate indeed are the women who are childless, the wombs that have not borne a child, and the breasts that have never nursed. People will beg the mountains, fall on us, and plead with the hills, bury us. For these things are done when the tree is green, what will happen when it was dry? Two others, both crim criminals, were led out to be executed with Jesus. When they came to a place called the Skull, they nailed him to the cross, and the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. The crowd watched, and the leaders scoffed. He saved others, they said. Let him save himself if he is really one of God's own you know, God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers mocked him too by offering him a drink of sour wine. They called out to him, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. A sign was fastened above him with these words, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed, So you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself, and us too while you're at it. But the other criminal protested, don't you fear God even when you have been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man has nothing has uh, done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. By this time, it was about noon, and darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. The light from the sun was gone, and suddenly the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn down in the middle. Then Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. And with these words, he breathed his last breath. When the Roman soldier overseeing the execution saw what had happened, he worshipped God and said, Surely this man was innocent. And when all the crowd that came to see the crucifixion saw what had happened, they went home in deep sorrow. But Jesus' friends, including the woman uh, who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching. So I know a lot of people say, oh, well, you know, how dare God sacrifice his own son on the cross? Like, that's messed up. You have to keep in mind that Jesus is God. God is Jesus. The Holy Spirit's God. These three in one, I guess you could say. I don't even know if those words, like, explain what I'm trying to say. But the Trinity, God literally came down as a human in the most vulnerable position as a baby Grew up to be a man in the flesh. Like, he literally gave himself a mortal body to die on the cross. God knew way before the world was created that this is how he knew he would save the world. He would die on the cross for the sins of people who may or may not come to accept him as the Messiah, as the Lord and Savior. And we see two different situations. I mean, we can get into a whole different topic of conversation here. But God literally gave part of himself, well, his whole self, I should say, but in the human form, in the most vulnerable position to die on the cross for the sins of the whole world, all of mankind. So when people say, oh, God, you know, like, sacrificed his son, Jesus, on the cross, 
No, God sacrificed himself on the cross because Jesus was God. Jesus was the Messiah, the chosen one. He knew that this would happen. He had predestined it to happen. Even before he made angels, before he made mankind, before he made the world, he knew what he was going to do. He knew what was going to happen. He knew the outcome of so many different events that we did not know the answers to. So let's keep in mind that it was God's will to give himself up in the form of human to be a perfect and clean sacrifice and atonement for sin. And also, like, growing up as a kid, I used to think that God, the Father, Jesus, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were all three separate beings. But in reality, they are one, just like I already said, but they are God. God was around long before we were created, and he predestined this to happen. He knew exactly how he would die. He knew that this would come, and he did not try to stop it. He knew that this had to happen in order to share his love with everyone, to actually have a gospel. And also, I want to go and look at Acts chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. This verse says, But God knew what would happen, and he prearranged, or his prearranged, I can't talk, his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life, for death could not keep his, uh, keep him in its grip. Death had no grip on him. And, okay, so, you know, when we hear the verse, the father gave his only begotten son that whoever, um, die should not die, but not perish, but live. Um, I know I've totally butchered that verse, and I know there's many people who have it memorized. I am not that person. I know, shocking, right? But I just want to get that in the air again. Like, I just want you guys to know that this is not an example of sacrificing your son that is evil. This is God giving up himself for us. And that was willingly. He knew what would happen. He let it happen. And he made sure it happened. So, so here's some people say who don't know the Bible that well. They're like, oh, well, God is evil because he gave Jesus and killed him. You, you know they're the same person, right? They're just different forms of God. Just saying. Anyway. All right. We got the last example of a child sacrifice. I don't want to say child. Uh, I was, I'm thinking more of a teenage girl or a young woman. It doesn't really exactly say what Jephthah's daughter age was, but I picture... You know, if people got married very young in, like, their teenage years, I would assume teenager, young adult. So, we're going to go to Judges chapter 11 verses... Do I want to read all that? Oh, goodness. I should have just did, like, a Spark Notes version <laughs> and just, you know, wrote down, like, what the main point is. But I'm going to read this. So, don't get so scared when I say verses 1 to 40. I know it's very long, but we'll get there, okay? So... Now, Jephthah of Gilead was a Greek, uh, a Greek, wow, a great warrior. He was the son of Gilead, Gilead, is that how you pronounce it? I don't know. But his mother was a prostitute. Uh, Gilead's w wife also had several sons, and when these half-brothers grew up, they chased Jephthah off the land. You will not get any of our father's inheritance, they said, for you are the son of a prostitute. So basically, Jephthah's dad slept with a prostitute, and thus he was born. And his half-brothers did not like him because of where he came from, or I should say, who he came from. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. Soon he was a, uh, he had a band of worthless rebels following him. So basically, these people who are rebels, they respected him, so they decided to follow him. About this time, the Ammonites began their war against Israel. When the Ammonites attacked, the elders of Gilead sent for Jephthah in the land of Tob. The elders said, Come, be our commander. Help us fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah says to them, Aren't you guys the ones who hated me and drove me out of my father's house? Why do you come to me when you're in trouble? Because we need you, the elders replied. If you lead us in battle against the Ammonites, we will make you ruler over all the people of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders, Let me get this straight. He's very straightforward. I love it. If I come with you, and if the Lord gives me victory over the Ammonites, will you really make me ruler over all the people? The Lord is our witness, the elders replied. We promise to do whatever you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of the Gil Gilead, 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 whatever, and the people made him ruler and commander of the army. At Mizpah, in the presence of the Lord, Jephthah repeated what he had said to the elders. 
Um, then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of Ammon, asking, Why have you come out to fight against my land? The king of Ammon replied or, uh, to Jephthah's messengers, saying, When the Israelites came out of Egypt, they stole my land from the Arnon River to the Jabbok River all the way to Jordan. Now, give me back the land peacefully. Jephthah said, uh, sent this message back to the Ammonite king. This is what Jephthah says. Israel did not steal any land from Moab or Ammon. When the people of Israel arrived at Kadesh on their journey from Egypt after crossing the Red Sea, they sent messengers to the king of Edom asking for permission to pass through his land, but their request was denied. Then they asked the king of Moab for similar permission, but he wouldn't let them pass through either. So the people of Israel stayed in Kadesh. Or Kadesh. Finally, they went around Edom and Moab through the wilderness. They traveled along Moab's border and camped on the other side of the Arnon River, but they never once crossed the Arnon River into Moab, for the Arnon was the border of the Moab. Alright, I'm just going to kind of uh, read a little bit. Um, so basically, I'm just going to skip some. Basically, this guy's like telling Jephthah, hey, you know, you saw my land. What are you saying that God gave it to you? Blah, blah, blah. Um, so then they go to war. Basically, the king of Ammon paid no attention to Jephthah's message, you know, because Jephthah brought up some good points, and he just refused to listen. And at that time, the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he went through the land of Gilead and Manasseh, including Mizpah and Gilead, and from there he had an army against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. He said, if you give me victory over these people, I will go to my, uh, hold on, I skipped a paragraph. I will go to the Lord Go, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I will give to the Lord whatever comes out of my house to meet me when I return in triumph. So basically, he's like, I will sacrifice whatever walks in my house as a burnt offering, as like a thanks to you, God. So basically, Jephthah and her army, uh, his army goes against the Ammonites. The Lord gives him victory. And Jephthah <laughs> returns home uh, to Mizpah. And guess what walks out of his house? His daughter. And she's all joyful. She's playing the tambourine. She's dancing for joy. She's his only child. And he promised God, whatever comes out of my house first, I will sacrifice to you as an offering of thanks. And when he saw her, you bet his heart that he tore his clothes in despair. He literally cried out, my daughter, you have completely destroyed me. You brought disaster on me. For I made a vow to the Lord and I cannot take it back. And he explains to her what he said, and she responds the most uh, gracious way I could have imagined. She's like, Father, if you have made a vow to the Lord, you must do what you have vowed. For the Lord has given you great victory over your enemies. But first, let me do this one thing. Let me go up to the hills with my friends for two months and weep with them, because I will die a virgin. And Jephthah basically said, go ahead, do what you need to do. And when she returned home, her father kept to the vow that he made to the Lord, and his daughter died a virgin. So, basically, some thoughts here. Jephthah's daughter willingly gave herself up since her father had made a vow to God. She took this vow seriously. She did not try to run away. She did not shy away from it. She let herself be sacrificed and let her father keep his vow because she honored God, honored her father, loved God, and loved her father. And I'm sure her dad learned to be better careful with his words from then on out. Because can you imagine saying, God, I will sacrifice whatever walks down my house first. What did he expect to walk out of his house? You know, a freaking rabbit? <laughs> I'm, You know, I if I was him, I would have said something different. But he took that vow so seriously, as did his daughter. His daughter loved the Lord as much as she loved her father. And she was not willing to sin by letting her father break his vow. And I'm sure she knew God seriously enough to where she knew that when you break a vow to the Lord, the scriptures say it's better to not make a vow. It says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And don't swear by anything, not even like your own clothes, your own home, but don't swear by anything. Don't say something if you can't keep it, you know, don't make a promise you can't keep. And she is willing to help her father keep that promise to God. And can you imagine how scary it must be to let yourself be sacrificed as a thanks to the God who helped your dad win a battle. Like, it's just such a weird concept in today's world. We think protect your children at all costs. 
but yet she was willing to lay her life down for the people she loved. And it's just, wow. I mean, a lot of people use that example to say, oh, well, he killed his daughter. She literally gave herself up for him because she loved him and she loved God more. And she knew that despite dying a virgin, never having children and giving up her dreams, she knew whose hand she was in. She was in God's hands and she trusted God despite the pain that she would uh, have come to her. And I just think that's such amazing view of sacrifice as a daughter. I mean, granted, I'm sure Jeff is going to watch his words from now on and, you know, not just say whatever comes to his head. He's going to think those words through more. But God gave him victory and God gave his daughter peace enough to be willing to be sacrificed because that was the vow of the Lord. And again, it's such a weird concept to think about. It's it's very strange, you know. You know, if I was in her position, I would probably be like scared, like, okay, dad, kill me in my sleep or something. Like, do it quickly so I don't feel pain, you know. It's just it's so weird to think about. Biblical stories, man, they're just so weird. Like you're like, I can't grasp this. But those are three examples where I feel like people like to twist the scriptures and validate the killing of children in some way, shape, or form because Isaac almost died. You know, God told him, go sacrifice your son to Abraham. But, you know, Isaac didn't die. God provided. And then, you know, God also provided himself on the cross in the form of a fleshly human to atone for our sins. You know, there's that a story which people take out of context and want to say, oh, well, God's evil then because he gave his up, gave up his only son. Um, and then there's also the fact that this story with Jephthah's daughter, people like to twist that, but she willingly gave herself up and took the vow to God seriously, just as much as she did her own life. So, you know, those are just some examples of where you see the Lord's hand in it versus the other examples I mentioned earlier where it's pagan customs and it's evil and it's sinful. These three examples were not sinful. If anything, they were so good and so loving and gracious and justice was served. And uh, yeah, no, Bible has some stories. Let me tell you. What kind of podcast episode is it if I don't read, I think, another scripture to just to end and <laughs> drive my point home, I guess. All right, so we're going to be reading from Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 to 6. It says, You must not make your, uh, for yourself an idol of any kind or image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. Alright, so one more verse, and then I promise I'm done, because I know I said a lot of verses today, so I think your mind might be a little jumbled, but we're going to end it on this one. This is from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. Again, Ephesians chapter 6, 1 to 4. It says, Children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord, for this is the right thing to do. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. If you honor your mother and father... Things will go well for you, and you will have a long life on earth. And I know what you're saying, Brenna. Hello. These people probably did try to honor their parents. Well, we don't know about that one. You know, they could have been disobedient. Did they deserve to die? Eh, probably not. However, you know, it takes respect in the parents as well. But in verse 4, it also says this. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with the discipline and the instruction that comes from the Lord. And, you know, we could throw in mothers do the same thing as well. But I just want to point out, though, it says, discipline them. Don't kill them. Uh, teach them the instruction of the Lord, not of all these pagan customs. It's no wonder sin fell upon the next generations and, you know, bad things happened for y'all because... Y'all weren't in tune with the Lord's way for you. You didn't follow him. You didn't follow his instructions. You didn't keep his commandments. And that's one of the biggest things. What we could do well for our children and our families 
Teach them the way they should go. Teach them how God wants them to live. Give them the instruction from biblical examples. It could be anywhere. It could be from the New Testament, the Old Testament. Teach them God's rules and his ways and his laws and what he does well for you. And y'all, with that being said, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I know it's a very long one, but I hope you guys learned something new and hope you guys come back for the next ones. Bye! Thank you.